At this time, I'll draw your attention to our reading from God's Word. Our sermon text uh, is from Matthew chapter 11. And the words to which I would call your attention come to us from verses 7 through 15. Let me ask you just one more time, in honor of the reading of God's Word, please to stand. This is God's holy and inerrant Word, Matthew chapter 11, verses 7 through 15. As they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man? Dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in kings' houses. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John, and if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Your word is a lamp to my feet. Amen. Please be seated. Well, at this point in Jesus' ministry, we remember beginning in verse 1 of chapter 11, Christ has gone back out to preach and teach in their cities. And He had completed the commissioning of His disciples. And so this concluded an aspect of His ministry. He'd, He'd warned His disciples about what was to come tried to bring some realism into their minds about what their preaching and teaching would result in. He's saying, look, people aren't going to like you very much. And so as we think about that, we have to remember that, that the works of Christ served to authenticate His message. And this is something that we have to keep as foremost in our minds, that Jesus was a preacher and a teacher. And we think, well, what did Jesus come to do? Well, he came to, he came to die on a cross, to rise again, but he also came, remember, as a prophet to proclaim the word of God. This is one of his offices. He's a prophet and a priest and a king. He came to reveal to us the will of God for our salvation. He healed with authority, and he taught with authority. But some point along the way here, Jesus may be sort of taking a, a route to some cities. He's preaching the gospel, teaching the people about himself and about God's kingdom. At some point along the way, John's disciples showed up with this question. Maybe Jesus had taken a break, maybe he had taken a breath, and they said, teacher, we we have this question for you, it's from John, and he said, okay, shoot. And they asked the question that we considered last week. 
But what we find this morning is that as Jesus has answered John's question, and he's moving on again, he took a moment, he took a moment to defend John the Baptist, which inevitably resulted in the Lord our God saying, uh, pointing to his own ministry, talking about the, um, the nature of his kingdom, because this is what John came to preach. And so Jesus defended John the Baptist by revealing the crowd's motivation and defining the reality of the kingdom. Notice with me, first of all, just the first point here in verse 7, defending John the Baptist. Jesus defended John the Baptist. Notice what we see there in in verse 7. As they went away, this is John's disciples are walking away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. And, And just something that you shouldn't let pass you by here. That Jesus had such a love for John as his servant. That he was concerned to defend his his ministry. Now, we don't know exactly what what happened. It could be that that a little time passed by before uh, Jesus started to speak about John, but but maybe not. Some think that, that what's happening here is that Um, the crowd overheard John's question. Are you the one that is to come? And last week we thought about what an odd question that might be. Because John himself said, he must increase, I must decrease. There is the Lamb who takes away the sin of the world. And we thought, what an odd question. Well, maybe the crowd thought, what an odd question. And Jesus knew that they were thinking, what an odd question. And understanding in his divine nature, their hearts, perhaps it is that Jesus wants to settle any doubts about who John the Baptist was. And so he sets about to defend his servant. And one of the things that you and I ought to take comfort from is knowing that Jesus has that kind of concern for every single man and woman and child who devotes his life to serving Christ. Jesus is a defender of his people. And he delights to defend you. You have no stronger defender than the Lord Jesus Christ who right now is seated on his throne and is subduing all of his and our enemies, making them a footstool for his feet. Maybe you would think, well, how how does Jesus... Defend me from his throne. I mean, here, I get it. All the crowd is around and he could speak to them. But now he's on his throne. How does he defend me from there? Dear brothers and sisters, I would suggest to you that you are probably unaware of all the ways that Jesus defends you on a daily basis. Let me just talk to you about one. Flip over with me to 1 John chapter 2. First John chapter 2. You, you, you know this. <clears throat> My little children, 1 John 2, 1. 
I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. The word advocate there is the same word that sometimes is used to describe the Holy Spirit, the the paraclete, the helper, the comforter. But the picture that John paints of the Lord Jesus Christ right now is as our advocate before the Father. And, And so perhaps if you think of a scene like Job 1 and 2 where there is Satan who is the accuser coming perhaps before God, presenting himself, accusing you. Well, there is Christ, your defender, your advocate, advocating for you before the Father. And not just against maybe the cries of the law, looking, look at my blood, or the accusations of Satan, but asking God to provide for you by name every single thing that you need in this life. But the ultimate is not that Christ is our defender here, but that Christ will be your defender in the day of judgment. I'll share with you just a quote from J.C. Ryle. It says, Do we know what it is to work for Christ? Have we ever felt cast down and dispirited? As if we were doing no good and no one cared for us. You ever felt like that? I'm working, I'm laboring, I'm trying to help others, I'm thinking of ways to serve Christ. No one seems to care. Are we ever tempted to feel when laid aside by sickness or withdrawn by providence? I have labored in vain and spent my strength for naught. You think again about John in the prison. Maybe a year, year and a half. Did you forget me, Lord? What's, did I do something wrong? Why am I here? Let us meet such thoughts by the recollection of this passage. Let us remember there is one who daily records all we do for him and sees more beauty in his servants' work than his servants do themselves. The same tongue which bore testimony to John in prison will bear testimony to all his peoples at the last day. He will say, Come, ye blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And then shall his faithful witnesses discover to their wonder and surprise that there never was a work spoken on their master's behalf, which does not receive a reward. Jesus defends you now, every moment of your life, and he will defend you then as your advocate. And this is what he provides to all who are united to him by faith. Jesus comes to the defense of John the Baptist. The second thing that we see here is that Jesus dealt with the crowd's motivation in verses 7 to 9. Look together with me at those verses. As they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? 
What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? So Jesus here, in his defense of John, he's looking at the crowds, maybe perceiving the questions in their minds, and he's saying to them, what did you go out to see? He's challenging them. They're interpreting John. What did you go out to see? And he asks them this three times. Did you go out to see a reed shaken by the wind? Some will make a whole sermon point out of these these questions that Jesus asks. Now, um, if you'd have, in Jesus' day, if you'd have gone down to the Jordan to see him while he was baptizing, one of the things you might have encountered were reeds. Some of these reeds grow um, like bamboo. They get 30 feet high. And you think of the moment when they took the reed and they put it in Jesus' hand, or they took the sour wine and they put it on a reed and reached it up to him. Maybe it was one of these reeds from down by the Jordan. Or John later in his ministry, when he went out to uh, Enon, it, uh, probably a marshland where there would have been reeds. And some talk about how <clears throat> these reeds, if they get blown by the wind, they break easily. And so the suggestion is, did you go out to see John because you, you wanted to see a man who's sort of moved around by the wind? And, and maybe that's what the point is, that they expected John just to, you know, he just, wherever the wind blows, that's where he's going to go. Or maybe what Jesus means by this question is, did you go out to see a reed shaken by the wind? In other words, who would go out to, to see a reed shaken by the wind? That's totally pointless. I'm inclined to think that's what he's saying. Um, you, you, those are the folks that just tag along. Or did you go out to see a man dressed in soft clothing? This is the second question. Did you go out to see a man dressed in soft clothing? This is the word that we find in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. It's um, an older word called a, a catamite. A, a catamite is a effeminate man. He dresses in soft clothing. He, he maybe sort of dresses like a man, but he's on the board. He kind of dresses like a woman too. And he carries himself way, that way. In, in other words, Jesus is saying, did you go out to see a, daint, a dainty man who belongs in a king's court? He's soft and pampered. Well, if you did, you, your expectations were thrown off, weren't they? Because he was dressed in camel's hair. And then the third time. Now these folks get pretty close. Did you go out to see a prophet? Did you go out to see a prophet? These are the folks who maybe actually expected John to be a preacher, a proclaimer of the word. But I don't think that the, the point of Jesus' questions is in the illustrations. I think the point is in the infinitives. You know, if you've passed your grammar class, you know that the infinitives are those, those verbs that are like to be, to see, to ski, to run, to walk. Jesus said, and what did Jesus ask? What did you go out to see? That's the point. 
If you came just to see, you missed it. If all John was to you was a spectacle, you missed it. Matthew Henry says, many that attend on the word come rather to see and be seen than to learn and be taught. To have something to talk of than to be made wise to salvation. Christ puts it to them. What went ye out to see? Note, they who attend on the Word will be called to an account what their intentions and what their improvements were. Matthew Henry is saying, when you appear before the Lord in that day of judgment, what's He going to ask you? Did you listen? And what did you do with what you heard? This, this is why we, we strip worship bare. You come to New Covenant and you find that, man, that's plain, boy. <laughs> um, just a piano. And that's, that's, it's not because we're pursuing a style. It's because the emphasis in the Lord's worship is what you hear. You must hear. And if you don't hear, don't come. Um, my wife and I were talking this morning about reading, you know, reading the Word. And we said, you know, um, having a sort of an objective to, to complete this many, you know, this much reading in a particular year. And I said, well, you know, isn't it a good thing to do that? And I said, well, if you obey. If you don't obey, don't read. And I mean that. Because it will be better for you to die in ignorance than it will to be die with all this knowledge and do nothing with it. You see, so Jesus' tone here is starting to change a little bit with his people. We strip out the, the flash because it's not about the band, it's about the words. It's not, it's not whether or not you leave here and you go away saying, man, boy, what an experience. It was, it's not an experience. I mean, it is an experience because you, you, through the Word of God, the Spirit of God works and He hopefully warms your heart as you think about Jesus Christ. He stands before the throne and that's my advocate and your heart is warmed. That's good. But you see, it is the truth that warms the heart, not, what a wonderful song. And that's what Jesus is challenging the people here about. What did you go out to see? What did you go out to see? What did you go out to see? Three times he asks them. Because if all you did was to go out and see, you missed the point. And so he moves on here in his defense of John from questioning the crowd's motivation, saying, you, you know, if you really think about it, you're not that good of judges of people in the first place. You, you see, because you didn't go out to listen to him. 
But notice thirdly that he demonstrates John's significance in verse, the last part of verse 9 to verse 11. <clears throat> yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. So the first thing that Jesus does is he affirms that John is a prophet. Yes, yes, he's a prophet. He is a proclaimer. He is, he is sent by God to preach the word to you, to make known to you uh, the revelation of God. He is a prophet, but he's more than a prophet. How's he more than a prophet? Well, what Jesus does here is he quotes Malachi chapter 3. He's quoting from Malachi chapter 3. Where is Malachi? Malachi is in the Old Testament. Specifically, Malachi is the last prophet. The Hebrew Bible is laid out. You have the law, and you have the prophets, and then you have the writings. And so Malachi would have come right before Psalms in in the Hebrew Bible. But Malachi is the last prophet. Now I want you to go over with with me to Malachi chapter 3. I'll make it easy. It's It's the book next to Matthew. If you go to Matthew 1, turn over one more page, and there will be uh, Malachi chapter 4, and then maybe one more page, Malachi 3. Now, before I read this, um, remember in... Matthew 3, one of the, probably the most extended part of John's sermon that we find is is Matthew 3, John 3. In Matthew chapter 3, John told the people who were coming out, this is where John called the people, hey, you know, you brood of vipers, um, really trying to pump the crowd up, Um, you brood of vipers, what did you come out here for? Uh, And he he tells them, Jesus is going to baptize you with fire and with the Spirit. His his winnowing fork is in his hand. So as he's building Jesus up, what kind of expectation is he giving? Well, here's someone coming to judge. All right, Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. God is speaking. My messenger will go before me. It's the same kind of thing as in Isaiah 40, verse 3. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord. Now, verse 2. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. Skip down to verse 5. Then I will draw near to you for judgment. 
I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. When Jesus refers back to Malachi chapter 3, what picture is he bringing forward? that John the Baptist prepares the way for the judge. Exactly what John said. You can imagine the people who went to Enon or the people who went to the Jordan and they listened to John preach and they say, well, the judge is coming. And then they see Jesus. And what's he doing? Well, he's, go, he's so kind and meek and loving. And he is healing. And everybody's, everybody's crowding around. Nobody's running away from him unless you've got a demon. And so maybe what's happening is the crowd says, man, John, he... he what a sourpuss. I mean, Jesus is, I like Jesus. And what Jesus is saying is, I am here to judge. I am here to judge. And what I want you to understand is that John is the greatest man that's ever lived. Wow. Now, Abraham, Moses, David, greatest ever. Elijah, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, greatest ever. John is the greatest of all human beings so far. He is the goat. The reason that John was the greatest up to that point is because he is culminating the end of an era. Up to this point, God has given prophet after prophet after prophet after prophet. Abel, well, Adam, Abel, Seth, Noah, Shem, Abraham, Jacob, Judah, Moses, David, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and all of these men, God has given a prophetic message and pointing toward the Messiah to come, preaching the Christ. You think about Noah, preached for 120 years, building the ark. And then there's John. And John was able to say, I see him. Now they all said, I see him. Abraham looked forward. Judah looked forward. They could all rejoice in the coming day of the Messiah. But John could say, I see him. And Jesus said that makes him the greatest because he is the prophet who touches the hand of the Messiah. But here's a weird one for you. Then Jesus says, yet the 
one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Greatest ever, not even in the kingdom. Because if you're the least and there's somebody below you, he's not in. Perhaps what Jesus is saying is that even at this point, John himself doesn't fully... Now, he's not saying that John's not saved or that any of these other men are not saved. What Jesus is saying is that he, even he, on the cusp of the birth of the new covenant in its fullness, even, even John doesn't yet fully comprehend the death and the burial and the resurrection and the ascension of the Christ. In, in his epistle, Peter says something similar. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully. You think about Adam and Abel and Seth and, and, and Noah and Shem. They, they're inquiring about this message. What, when God said that, that one would come and crush the head of the serpent, what does that mean? They inquired about it carefully. Who is it? When is he coming? It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you. And the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. And what Jesus is saying, he is the he is the, John is the end of an era. He is the greatest of all prophets because of his place in time that he, he sees the Messiah and yet there's, there's more that he doesn't even understand because it hasn't been accomplished. There's more to be accomplished. The death and the burial and the resurrection of the Messiah. And so some heard John possibly and they they, you know, John is the dower, you know, he's the Puritan preacher. And then here comes Jesus, and man, he's missional. And they said, John got it wrong. And what Jesus says is, actually, I did come to judge. I did come to judge. And so here's what we need to understand is you don't understand John because you don't fully understand. John didn't fully understand. So let me fourthly in here define the kingdom for you. In verses 12 to 15. Truly I say to you, I'm sorry, from the days of John the Baptist until now the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence. And the violent take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And, and if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Now there are all kinds of questions about what, what does this mean? Um, the kingdom comes by violence and the violent take it by force. Um, and some will say, well, that Greek term can have a different meaning. It can mean constrained or it can mean to press in. And in Luke chapter 16, it seems like 
Jesus used it in a different sense that men press into the, to the kingdom, that they're, they're pushing their way into the kingdom. Here the sense seems to be that, that there's violence being done, being done to the kingdom. Well, what, what kind of violence could we think of? Well, where's John? He's in prison. And I, I expect, and you probably do too, that at the moment John was arrested, there were a whole bunch of people who were saying, man, thank goodness. Thank God. John's gone. He insulted me. He insulted my family. John's arrested. So there's literal violence being done to the kingdom. And before him, think about it, before him, the prophets were treated violently. What happened to Abel? Brother killed him. What happened to Moses? Hated by many of the people over and over. Praying, Lord, take my life. I can't deal with this people anymore. You are too great a burden for me. Think of Jeremiah lowered into a pit. And over and over, men of God proclaiming the word were killed. Maybe the violence being done to the kingdom is that men simply reject it. They shut it out. How would they do that? They don't listen. Notice what Jesus said. From the days of John the Baptist, that means when, from the time that he began his ministry until now, there's, been, there's still violence. Verse 13, for all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. What, what did they do? They, John wasn't the first one to come and preach. There have been other preachers. Literally, God has sent to you dozens, hundreds of preachers proclaiming to you the coming of the Messiah. And now John has come, and who is he? Well, he is a prophet in the likeness of Elijah, the last prophet. Now, if you've ever seen a... Um, in Judaism, they celebrate what's called a, a Seder meal. You might have heard of this, S-E-D-E-R. And in the Seder meal, they go through and they, they have all of these different um, elements. They have bitter herbs, and this is to remind us of the bitterness of sin and our bondage when we were in Egypt. And, and so they go through, and there's a lamb bone involved, and, and they go through all of this, and, and they do this every year. And at the end of the Seder they send a young child out and they say and they say go and see if Elijah has come because in Malachi chapter 4 we read this these are now Malachi is the last prophets here are his last words behold i will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the lord comes and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children, and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. So if you knew Malachi, your expectation was Elijah would come, day of the Lord. Elijah, day of the Lord. 
you remember that Elijah was taken to, into glory without di- dying in, in um, 2 Kings chapter 2. What happened? The, the chariot of fire came down, picked Elijah up, and there he went into the air. So the prediction of Malachi and the expectation is you've got this little kid who's running out and he's looking for this chariot of fire to come back down. John says, or Jesus said, it's John. John is Elijah. Malachi declared Elijah would return to announce the coming of the Messiah. And Jesus here declared that John prophesied, as the angel said in Luke 1.17, in the spirit and power of Elijah. If you accept that, you have to accept something else. That the man who's standing in front of you right now telling you about John is the Christ. If you accept, if you're willing to accept it, that John the Baptist came preaching in the spirit and power of Elijah as the angel said, and now as I say to you, then I am Yahweh. I am the one for whom he prepared the way. And what Jesus is saying to us ultimately is he has got this crowd before him and defending John the Baptist. The the defense of John the Baptist is, is sort of the obvious part, I think. But if we look underneath the water and we see the depth of this iceberg of information. Ultimately, what Jesus is declaring as he's defending John, what he's declaring to Israel is this. The kingdom and judgment come by hearing. You see, notice how Jesus ended. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. In other words, whenever you see that term let, it's a, that's a command. He, he who has ears to hear must hear. Turn over with me just for a second to Matthew chapter 13. We're going to get to this passage in just two or three weeks, four weeks. And there's a very famous line here in Matthew chapter 13. This whole chapter is the parables of the kingdom. And this famous line, behold, a sower went forth to sow. And what Jesus outlines in Matthew chapter 13 is that there are four types of soil. Remember? How many good types of soil are there? One. How many bad types of soil are there? Three. How many times did Jesus ask the people what they went out to see? Three times. And notice in verse 9 of Matthew chapter 13, what does Jesus say? He who has ears to hear, 
he must hear. It's the same terminology. And so what we find in Matthew chapter 11 as we go back, what Jesus is pointing out to them is that it's not so much about seeing. It's not about seeing. It's not about looking into the sky and seeing Elijah coming down on his chariot of fire and returning. Uh, You could have seen Moses ascend up onto Mount Sinai there. You could have beheld that and experienced it. But what's truly important to enter into the kingdom of heaven means that you listen. You listen to the prophets. You listen to John. You go out into the wilderness and you listen to what he says and you bring out the fruit of it. Jesus defended John the Baptist here because by revealing the crowd's motivation, you never went to hear him in the first place. All you wanted was an experience. You you want a little religiosity. And he defined the reality of the kingdom. He defended John by validating his message of judgment. How is Jesus judging here? What is the winnowing fork? What is the discs coming after the tractor what is doing the work of judgment the preaching of the word the preaching of the word the more he preaches the more the people get fired up the more he preaches the more there's the division grows the um, family members are divided from one another and the judgment comes the judgment is shown he preaches the word and they reject it and they show you're under judgment he's he's brought the winnowing fork it is the word What divides the outsiders from the insiders is their response to the Word of God. Jesus works, validated His message, and many came for the works and disregarded the message, just like they do today. Those who heard the Word and did the Word, that's true Israel. Amen. Let's pray. Our great Lord, we humble ourselves before you this morning, recognizing that you are the judge of all the earth. And that your judgment is your word. You've, you, you simply preached and people responded or they didn't. And we thank you, O oh Lord, that you, according to your promise, have sent forth your spirit into the hearts of your people so that we might identify your word, we might hear your word, we might crave your word, we might respond to your word. In other words, that we might live under the dominion of a divine king whose law is perfect, whose law converts the soul, whose law is better than honey, whose words are, are, are to us more valuable than silver and choice gold and jewels and all that we might desire cannot compare to Your Word. We ask, O oh Lord, that You would help us by the power of Your Spirit to live this way, to live holy lives, not so that we can earn a gold star or a merit badge, but so that we might magnify our King 
and show that we are true Israel. Vindicate yourself in our lives. We pray in your name. Amen.